0: If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Joshua. We're in chapter twenty this morning. We've been studying the book of Joshua, and we've been learning as a faith family that everything in the book points to the absolute majesty and glory of our Savior Jesus and His remarkable gospel of grace. We've been learning how the book of Joshua and all the victories Israel's had over the enemy point to the ultimate victory that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. The victory that Christ won over our enemy, Satan, over sin, over death itself. That Christ has won the victory with his death, burial, and resurrection, proving that he is the Son of God, that he is God himself, and his victory gives us victory in our daily lives. And so as we're continuing in this study in the book of Joshua, we're asking a question this morning talking about victory. And the question is, for what purpose? For what end? Why did God lead the nation of Israel into the land of Canaan, this promised land, and give them victory? We're looking at that this morning. And so just as a brief recap, the last several weeks we've been in Joshua, and we've been learning that God took His people into the land That they were victorious over every major city and stronghold in Canaan. And then we saw last week how the tribes divided the land among themselves as God led through casting of lots. And each tribe had their inheritance. Let's pick it up from there. Again, Joshua chapter 20. And let's read that together. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. There shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in the city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who was high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town in his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart... Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the Tableland, from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad and Golan in Bashan, and the tribe of Manasseh. These are the cities designated for all the people of Israel, And for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood, till he stood before the congregation. You see, now that God's people were living in the land that God gave to them, he wanted them to reflect his glorious character. He wanted them to be a light to all nations. And for every nation surrounding to see the people of God and to see that there is a God in heaven and He is holy and He is powerful and He has saved them and given them this land. And as they lived in this land, God wanted them to maintain justice. And we're seeing that in this this text. In chapter 20, we just read verse 3. It mentions the avenger of blood. Now, if you're not sure what that is, we don't have time this morning, but in Numbers 35, it gives a context of what is going on with the cities of refuge and this Avenger of Blood. And in Numbers 35, it describes that anyone who was guilty of murder was to be executed. And the Avenger of Blood was a person who was responsible to carry out that execution. So the Avenger of Blood was typically. the the closest male relative to the person that had been killed. And so in that situation, he was responsible to put the murderer to death and in so doing, maintain justice among God's people. But the question still remains, but what if it was an accident? What if someone was killed and it was not intentionally? Like, for example, in Deuteronomy 19 also describes the situation and the cities of refuge and this avenger of blood. And in verse 19, it gives an example. What if two men go out into the woods to cut down a tree? And what if one of them loses his grip on the axe and by accident hits his brother and kills him? That was not intentional. There was no malicious intent. And so what would happen in that situation? Well, What we describe here is that God provided a way for that person to be spared and not to be executed by the avenger of blood. And so God set up these cities of refuge, as we just read, where a suspected manslayer, so someone guilty of manslaughter, which is killing someone without malicious intent, so by accident killing someone, they could then go to this city of refuge. Refuge, as we just read right here, without intent. Now again, other passages that describe this is Exodus 21 and Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19. So there's a lot of history. And right here when you get to Joshua chapter 20, it doesn't say a whole lot. It just reminds Joshua, like I told Moses, because Moses wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And so, what you're seeing here is if someone killed another person without ill motives, they could then flee to a city of refuge. And we just read these names that, yeah, sometimes hard to pronounce. These are describing six cities. And there are three of them that are on the east side of the Jordan River and three on the west side of the Jordan River. So, there were six of these cities of refuge in total. And if you look at a map, you will see that these six cities, there was one on the north, in in the center, and in the south. Same thing on the west side, north, center, and south. So that wherever you were, on either side of the Jordan River, if you were among the people of God, and if you accidentally killed someone, then you could flee and easily access one of these six cities. And so verse 4, we just read, tells us, He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. So if someone was in a situation where they had to flee and they would go to the city of refuge, the officials in that town would grant him Asylum, these local authorities called the elders would grant him asylum, a place of safety and of refuge. It says, while well, there was a trial, and, and again, Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19 give a little bit more detail on this trial. All it says here is, stand for judgment before the congregation in verse 6. But that's describing the same thing here of stand before the congregation, stand trial, And so in order for there to be a fair and just trial, this person who was suspected of manslaughter could be kept safe and live in this city of refuge. Now, what we also see here is if the person was guilty of murder, if he was lying, and if he had gone to a city of refuge, and and the investigation and the congregation says, no, eyewitnesses, he is guilty of murder. At that point, the officials of the city of refuge, would hand over the guilty party for execution at the hands of the avenger of blood. But if he was exonerated, if he was acquitted, if he indeed was not guilty, and it was by accident, then it says that he could continue to live in the city of refuge. He had to still stay there. This is showing the value of human life, that even though it was an accident, someone still died. And so that person had to continue to live in the city of refuge, it says, until the death of the high priest. Now, once a high priest died, then that person was free of all charges and could go back to their hometown and continue living their life as it was before. Now, when we as very sophisticated people in the 21st century read this, we think to ourselves, man, that's awfully primitive. That's kind of an archaic, primitive form of justice. And we might think that's true, but the reality is that that isn't the point. The, The point here in God's word isn't for us to look and examine how sophisticated the justice system was. The point that this is conveying to us today is that God set up a system over 3,500 years ago, for God's people to have justice. That's the point. He wanted them to have a land that was marked by justice, where those that were guilty were indeed dealt with appropriately, and those who were innocent were spared and given a fair trial. And so that's what we're seeing here, is God wanted justice But let's keep reading in chapter 21, the first three verses, because these two chapters are tied together. 21 verses 1 through 3. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar, the priest, and to Joshua, the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh, in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. Now, of the 12 tribes of Israel, we saw this last week, 11 of them were given an inheritance They were given a particular piece of land for them to live. This is where they would live for generations to come. But the Levites we saw last week were not given an inheritance. They were not given the land for their families and for future generations. And so what we're seeing here is now they're coming forward and saying, okay, God promised us cities, and now it's time to divide those up. The Levites were only given cities Because they were a special tribe. The Levites were responsible for leading in the tabernacle, which existed at this point in history. And then later, under King Solomon, when they would build the temple. At that point, Levites would then work in the temple. And even David kind of restructured them where they even did singing, kind of like what we do here this morning. And so Levites were the spiritual leaders in Israel. And if you look in Deuteronomy 33, towards the end of chapter, verses 8 through 11, it gives you a synopsis of what the Levites did. And it just summarizes who they were. It describes how they were the ones that were the teachers. And so the Levites were the ones that would teach Torah, would teach God's word to his people. They were the ones that were the priests. And so the high priest, who was first Aaron and all of his descendants, and so the high priest came from the tribe of Levi. And all the other priests also came from this one tribe of Levi. And so they were the spiritual leaders, the priests, the ones that worked in the the temple. And they were set apart for God to teach God's people what his word was and how to follow him. And in so doing, they were not given a land. And the reason is pretty simple. If the Levites were the leaders and teachers and priests, if they had only one little section off to the northeast, then people in the southwest would never even meet a Levite. They couldn't hear God's word being taught by the Levites. And so what did God do? He didn't give them any one land. He had them scattered across the entire promised land in 48 cities. So that way, wherever you lived, anywhere in the promised land, anywhere among God's people, there was a Levitical city very nearby. And you were able to then hear God's word. And they were able to minister to God's people. So God, in His wisdom, did not give them their own land. He had them scattered across in these 48 cities. So in verse 3, we just read, So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites. Listen to this. They gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. So the land that was given to, say, Judah or Reuben... Or Dan, then they would give individual cities from their inheritance and the surrounding, the suburbs, so, so to speak, of that city for pasture land. Now, if you keep reading from verse 4 through verse 40, that whole section describes by name each of these 48 cities and where they came from in the actual land. And so we won't read that, but on your own time you certainly can, but it's all in there, describes every one of these cities. Now, keep in mind, bear in mind that in the ancient world, their economy was all agricultural. It wasn't like today. Today, our economy has many different sectors. There's many ways to have business and, and to have income for your family. In this ancient context, there was only one way to provide for your family. There was one way to make money, and it was basically through agriculture. If you didn't have land, if you couldn't plant your crops, and if there wasn't land for you to take care of your cattle and your sheep and your goats, if you didn't have land, you had nothing. No land, no food, no future. And so the Levites were going to have a tremendous struggle financially to survive living in a city. There was no Lulu or Carrefour. They they couldn't just go to a big, supermarket and go buy their groceries. It wasn't like that. They had to raise their own crops. And so they were put in a very difficult position in not having their own inheritance. They would not be able to truly survive and thrive in these cities. So what did God do? What was God's plan to provide for the spiritual leaders and priests and teachers among God's people? God called it a tithe. He asked God's people to tithe to him by providing for the Levites. You see the numbers 18, verse 21. I'll read that to you. It says, To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service that they do. You see also in Deuteronomy 14, 28-29. It says, You shall bring out all the tithe of your produce. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled. So what you're seeing is the people of God that were blessed because the land belonged to God. It was his. And he gave it to his people as a gift. But then they were to be responsible with that gift and be generous. And take care of who? The fatherless, the widow, the traveler. To take care of them, to give to the poor, to care for those in need. And, he says, for the Levite, those that were leading them spiritually, they were called to then tithe to take care of those in their midst. So, the rest of this chapter describes the cities. Again, we will read that. Let's get to verse 41, kind of towards the end of the chapter. And let's read the summary statement in 41 and 42. The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture land around it. So it was with all these cities. And so among these 48 Levitical cities scattered across the whole promised land, you had six of them. That were the cities of refuge that we just read in the previous chapter. So 42 regular, but total was 48 cities and 6 special ones for refuge. Now let's finish this chapter and let's see how this applies to you and me today. Verse 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all the enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Amen. God's promises never fail. His promises always come to pass. We have a God that is unchanging. He doesn't change His mind. He's never surprised. He can't learn anything new. He already knows everything. And because He is unchanging, we can rest in Him. We can trust Him. And when He makes a promise, He won't change His mind. This is very critical for us to understand. These last few verses verses 43 through 45, summarize the book of Joshua. If someone ever asks you, what is the book of Joshua about? You can look right here. Oh, book of Joshua. It's about this. That God gave them a land that He promised them. And it's a possession of it. And they settled it. And they had rest. And the enemy was defeated. And God keeps His word. That's Joshua. That's the whole book, what it's about in a nutshell. What you see here is the word give is used repeatedly. Several times the word give is used in these three verses. It says God gave them victory. It says God gave them the inheritance and God gave them rest. These are gifts. So God gave them victory. It says all the enemies could not withstand them. And God gave them the land that he promised to them. And God gave them rest on every side. And so God is giving his people Victory over the enemy. He is giving us victory over our temptations. He gives us victory over all of those struggles. But He also gives us an inheritance that we have talked about two weeks ago. How we're going to have this glorious inheritance with our Father and with Jesus. We'll seek Him as He is and that awaits us. We're co-heirs with Christ and He's giving us the gift of this inheritance. And it says then He gives rest. One day, we'll have a final rest from the battle against sin. These are God's good gifts that he gives to his children. He loves you. Our God truly loves you. The book of Joshua reminds you that he loves you, and it's evidenced by all of his good gifts. He's a generous father. And he gives us blessings. But understand, the blessings, the gifts that God gives to us are not an end. The gifts that we get are a means to a much greater end. So back to our first question from early in the worship service. Why? Why did God lead them into the promised land? Why does God give his children gifts? It's all about his glory. It's all about God displaying his glory, which is The thrust of these two chapters and the main idea, the main point, the primary truth here, it's on the screens, is that God blesses His people so that we can display His glory. That's why He does it. God gives you blessings. God gives you gifts. And He does it for a reason so that we can then use those gifts to bless other people and to display His glory. So God has given you the gift of your intelligence and yes, all of you have intelligence. Some of you shaking your heads. It's not true. You are intelligent. And the reason is because he wants you to use your mind for his glory. He's given you a job. You think, not a very good one. Or, man, a really hard one. Or, man, really long hours and a bad boss. Maybe so. But he's given you that employment as a gift so you can display his glory in how you work. The gift of your family. There are some days you think, man, I don't know about that gift. It's a lot of work. It is. Having children is a lot of work. Having a spouse is a lot of work. It is. But it's a gift. It's a gift from your Father who loves you. And that gift is to be treasured, cherished, and used to display God's glory. He's given you the gift of your resources, the gift of your experiences, what you bring to the table. And when you are a part of this faith family and you don't use your experiences and gifts to serve others, listen to what you're doing. You are robbing this body of you. You are a gift to this church. I truly see it that way. And from God's word, I can prove it to you. God gives gifts to the church. You. And everything that you are with your experiences, your intelligence, your abilities, is to be used for God's glory to build up this body. And so we have all of these gifts, these blessings, blessings that are used for His glory. Let's think four specific ways as we kind of think about applying this to us here today. As we move forward for taking notes, we display God's glory through lives of justice. You see, what you're seeing right here in this text, it's showing us what we should look like in our daily lives and gifts that we have that we should then use for His glory. And we're seeing that the first hallmark of someone that is receiving God's good gifts and then is then using it to glorify God, to display his character, is that our lives look like how? Justice. Because God's people, their lives should be marked by justice. And we see that in this text. The cities of refuge were all about maintaining justice so that the guilty would be executed and the innocent would not. God wanted fairness. He wanted equity in in his land. And so God's people, us, our lives should be marked by justice. And this does not apply only to police officers and judges and and officials. Yes, it applies to them, but it applies to you and me as well. Because what is justice? Well, justice is being impartial or fair while conforming to truth. And so justice is being impartial or fair while conforming to truth. And so is your life marked by truth? Is your life marked by fairness? The application is far-reaching for us today. And if you're here today and you're a manager, a lot of you are. A lot of you are very senior level in your work. As you lead those that are under your authority, do you lead them with, Fairness. Are you really fair? Are you truthful with those under your authority? But those of you that are not in authority at work, that you're, you're on the bottom, you're just as valuable. And you think, well, I'm not a manager, what about me? Well, do you work in such a way that you're maintaining fairness? What I mean by that is, are you having a full day's work for what you're getting paid? I don't get paid very much. You trust God with that. Whatever you signed up and whatever your income is, are you honestly giving your employer fairness by working hard even when the boss is not looking? Are you truthful? As a father, as a mother, am, am I treating my children with fairness? And if I'm honest with you, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I lose my patience. And I'm unjust with my children. Do we treat each other like that? Teenager in the room. Student. Are you truthful with your parents? Is your life marked by fairness, equity, truthfulness? That's what God wants from his people. Because he's been so good to us and he's blessed us. And so now we should display his glory by lives of justice. But second, we also see that we display God's glory through lives of, number two, grace. So we're seeing in this text, justice is a hallmark. We're also seeing grace. What you're seeing with these cities of refuge is that God wanted them to show grace to each other and not be too quick to punish, not so quick to have judgment Like, wait, 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 let's not be too quick. Let's stop. Let's take a breath and let's see what's going on here before we just met out punishment. And it was also for the sojourner, for those that were traveling. So even for non-Israelites, it says in verse 9, the cities of refuge were designated all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them. And so God wanted His grace to extend to all nationalities. He wanted all the nations to see that He is good. He wanted every person, every tribe, nation, and tongue to run to the one true God and to bow down and to worship Him alone. To take their idols and to smash them and to enjoy knowing God. It's about all nations. It's not just us four, no more. All nations. And you see it right here with Israel. Our lives should reflect mercy and grace and love because that's what God is like. The cities of refuge are very significant for us today. The significance is profound. And the reason why the cities of refuge point to Jesus and his gospel of grace. Remember, people could stay in the city of refuge As long as the high priest was alive. Once the high priest died, then they were free to go back home. They were free of all guilt. You see, the high priest represented the whole nation. He represented them when he would go into the the temple. He would offer sacrifices on behalf of them. So he represented their guilt and, and the sacrifice that had to be made for the guilt to be removed. And so symbolically, with the death of the high priest, it meant that the guilt was now released. And so the person that had been guilty is no longer guilty because the one who represented them is now dead. And this is all a foreshadowing to what we see in Jesus, which is why we read earlier in the worship gathering out of Hebrews chapter 7. I'll just remind you what we read, just an excerpt. Jesus is... Who represents us. Who offered up himself as the sacrifice. So so he is the high priest and he is the sacrifice. Not a, the. Jesus is the better and final high priest. Who is the only one that could represent us and endure our guilt on the cross as our sacrifice. And now we have forgiveness only because of Jesus and Hebrews 6 also describes this reality and promises fulfilled through Jesus. Hebrews 6:18 says, "We who have fled for refuge here." We who have fled for refuge, we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Jesus is our refuge. We don't run to a city of refuge. It says we run to Jesus, our only hope. He is our refuge. I want you to picture an ancient Israelite who was guilty. And he is on a hot, dusty road. And he's running frantically. And up ahead, he can see the gates of the city of refuge. But right behind him, there is a man who is furious with the sword extended, and he's chasing the Israelites. He's chasing him, And the avenger of blood is gaining ground. And the one who is guilty of manslaughter, he's running. And he's out of breath. And he's thirsty. And he, he's just trying to just get to the gate. And he's running. And he can hear the breath and the steps. And he can almost feel the sword on his neck. And then finally... He makes it and He crosses the gate and He collapses in the city of refuge to the feet of the gatekeeper. And He is saved and experiences salvation and grace. He has found refuge. That's us. May we run to Jesus. Run towards Him and find our refuge in the only one that can satisfy your soul. The only one. May we feast on the bread of life and drink deeply of living water and have souls that are satisfied, not hungry and not thirsty anymore. Satisfied souls enjoy Jesus and have the strength of the Spirit to walk in victory against all the temptations that would seek to drag us down. See, there's a refuge pointed to Jesus and the indescribable, glorious grace of God. What refuge are you running to? Are you running to the refuge of achievement, refuge of career, refuge of family or the refuge of comfort, those are no refuge. You won't find it there, only in Jesus. May we be a people who have so understood and are so overwhelmed by God's grace to us that we naturally extend it to others. Because people who lack grace don't understand how much grace they've received. When we understand the gifts that we've received, we respond with blessing others and displaying God's glory. May we be a people that are marked by grace. I can tell you that a day doesn't go by, and especially not a Friday, where I'm not overwhelmed, where I'm not just overwhelmingly thankful and see it as an absolute privilege to serve this faith family. It is such a joy. To be your pastor has been, outside of knowing Jesus, the greatest joy that I've had. And it is such an honor. And I want to be someone that is marked by grace. I want to be gracious to you and I want you to know that I love you. Let's just say it. I want you to feel it. I do. And may we be a people that reflect the grace of God and how we treat one another by showing grace and forgiveness and accepting despite our flaws. May we have lives, number three, that are marked by generosity. We display God's glory through lives of Generosity. So we're seeing that lives, are, this, they're marked by justice and grace. We receive God's blessings and we just live in a different way, marked by a generosity. And so we see in the same text, the Israelites that were given blessings, they were given land. And then they were told to financially provide for those that were poor as well as the Levites, for those that led and that were teaching them. And this pattern is carried into the New Testament. If you read 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17 through 18. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. It says the laborer deserves his wages. And in 2 Corinthians nine, verse seven, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Why do we pass the offering bag? every Friday morning. This is a worship gathering. So why do we pass a bag? Is that just because we need money? Is it because it's just practical? Because we didn't do something when we sing a song? Why do we pass an offering bag in the worship gathering? Because giving to God is an act of worship. Everything that happens in a worship gathering, even the announcements where we are explaining how you can be a part of the church's mission, is worship, and that includes giving. Giving is, we must have lives that are marked by generosity. Now, generosity is a result. You can't fake it. Either you have it or you don't. Either you're generous or you're not. You can't fake generosity. So if you have a heart that is truly generous, it is a result of something. It is a result of having been gripped by the grace of God. And so when you see someone that is generous and full of joy, I can guarantee you, take it to the bank, that person has been overwhelmed by the grace of God. Of God. They know how much God has given to them, and just overflow is generosity. Generosity and gratitude are linked together. You cannot be generous if you're not grateful. When we are grateful for the gifts God has given to us with our salvation, and beyond that, with our financial gifts, then giving away becomes an act of worship. Now, when we give, we're showing that we love Jesus more than security or possessions. We're saying, take it, Jesus. I want it for your kingdom. I don't want it for me. I want it for you. And so thank you for giving me so much. To give you a portion back is a joy out of gratitude as worship to you. And so we're showing that we love Jesus more. But we're also showing that we trust him more. When someone says, I'm not going to give, I'm I'm not going to put anything in the offering bag, or I might put just a little bit because I need more for me, they're saying that they don't trust. It's a lack of trust that God will provide. And so how we spend our money is evidence of where our heart is. And so giving is an act of worship. Now, the New Testament, if you look at it, and all the teaching about the church never describes tithing. Like the word tithing isn't used in that context. It's used talking to the Pharisees and so forth, but it never is used in the context of the local church giving a tithe. So I'll be honest with you. Do you have to give 10%? Maybe you can give more. Because the New Testament talks about sacrificial giving. And it says in verse 7, again, 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he decided in his heart. Between you and God. Look, at our church, we don't even have envelopes. I don't even know who gives. I don't know who gives. I don't know how much you give. And even if I did, I'm I'm not on the finance team. So I don't even touch the money. I have nothing to do with that. We have an amazing team that serves and is faithful and takes care of that, and we trust them. So I don't know who gives how much, and I like that. I don't want to know how much you give. I'm glad I can't know and I don't know. It's better that we don't. It's between you and God. But may we be a people that are marked by generosity because God has given to us. So now, out of the overflow, we give to him. So lastly, as we close, we display God's glory through lives of worship. As you read Exodus 20 and 21, we're seeing our lives should have justice. We should be fair. We should show grace to each other. We should be generous like the Israelites were. And we should worship. Why do you think that God had the Levites, who again, the leaders, the teachers all around the promised land, scattered across, he was making a statement. I want worship across the land. I want my, all my people to be worshipers. And we have lives marked by valuing Jesus more. That 's what worship is, what you're worth, what you value that 's what it is. May we enjoy Jesus and be satisfied in him verse forty five we just read a minute ago that describes every promise was kept, none have failed. That was kept partially with Joshua. The final fulfillment is waiting that day when Christ returns. when we will have victory over sin, completely we'll have new glorified bodies, we'll live with Jesus forever in the ultimate promised land, in heaven, the new earth. That awaits us. So we walk every day, remembering that God blesses us so that we can then display his glory with justice and grace and generosity and worship. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you. We worship you. We value you more than anything else that this world could ever offer us. We want to live lives where we are so aware of all of your gifts and that we simply reflect that in how we live. Thank you for our gifts. Help us to love you, the giver, more than the gifts themselves. Thank you for this gathering. Thank you that we can read your word. I pray that we by your grace, would be a church that reflects these qualities for your glory. And we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.